Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's another beautiful morning in sunny South Florida. And I have my good friend, Barbara Shaw, with me today. I'm so super excited, guys. Um, Barbara, thanks so much for joining me today on Coding with Christine Hall. How are you? Thank you for the invitation. I'm well. How are you? Good, good. Did you know that today is National Sandwich Day? No, I did not. Terry loves it when I talk about the national days and what they are. And and let me be honest, that is probably the only dish that I can make um, with ease and successfully. Let's put it that way. It's the only dish I can make successfully are sandwiches. So um, my poor husband a few years ago had a total knee replacement and he's the one who does the most of the cooking in my house. And so for a couple of weeks, we had grilled cheese, we had hot sandwiches, we had roast beef sandwiches, ham sandwiches. Um, I even made a Cuban sandwich one time. So I feel like today is my my holiday, right? It's my sandwich day. So, but I'm so glad that you came on today to talk to us about hematology. So we don't usually get a lot of um, thought about coding for hematology or what that takes. And I can only imagine that you also spend a lot of time with those laboratory codes. More, more with the diagnosis codes than with the laboratory. Yeah. And um, we had some, some new codes that came out this year in the hematology section that von von wilderbrands that was expanded out i didn't realize there were so many different types of von wilderbrands disease yes yes yeah and those so added some additional hccs for us indeed indeed just kind of like a couple years ago when they expanded sickle cell disease they did the same for von wilderbrands yeah so I want to hear the story, Barbara. How did you get into hematology? How did that spark your interest? Okay, you want the short version? <laughs> no, well, we're friends. Tell, uh, tell me the, the okay. version. How did that happen? Okay. Basically, it's kind of been a little bit of a journey. Okay. Um, when I started, when I started in college, I did not have any plans into going into coding or auditing or whatever. So I thought I wanted to be a nurse because my mother was a nurse and she talked about it and she loved it. And I thought it was interesting. So I thought, oh, OK, I'll try that. After being in it for about a semester, I was like, oh, no, I am not a nurse. I'm not a nurse. So, of course, I had to change things. Um, but I, I learned enough to be dangerous when I got into medical coding and such, where I knew enough to help get authorizations, because that's when back in the, I guess, the mid 80s, that's when the HMOs mm -hmm. hit and everything. So I yeah. could authorize anything. It's phenomenal. Created this form in the whole nine yards. So so anyways, so I started my journey actually in OBGYN coding. But when I first started off, I was doing transcription and I would see like pernicious anemia, von Willebrand's disease and that sort of thing. And it, I always would look in the dictionary like, oh, my God, what is that? You know, and like, oh, OK, thank God I don't have funny. that and just keep typing. 
I do that and when then, when we get our new codes for the next year, when those new ICD-10 codes, I Google the disease, the signs and symptoms. I make a little like reference sheet for myself or a resource sheet for myself so that I know what they are and what signs. So that way this next year, I can kind of become comfortable with those diagnosis codes as I see them come al along. And then I update my reference list next year with the other new codes. Yep. But I get what you mean about looking it up and seeing what it is and yep. getting excited about it. Right. And then I spent like the next 25 years in OBGYN. And with the physician I worked with, we specialized in high-risk obstetrics. So mm -hmm. your patients that would come in that had sickle cell disease or Von Willebrands or um, they tested positive for thalassemia, whatever, you know, and it, the list goes on and on. And so I was acclimated and understood about factor five lighting. And that's why they got that special check, you know, cause they were special and just, mm -hmm. it just continued on. So it just, it, it's just been a perpetual thing. And then being in the risk adjustment home and looking at problem lists and past medical history, I have a I have a very strong interest when I audit like hematology and oncology. So I'm actually studying for that credential. Now, whether I go and take the exam, but I'm learning all about that mm -hmm. and how it all ties in together. That's incredible. I um my my journey into this was very briefly, I left the administrative part of um, medical billing coding. And I did study to become a medical assistant. And I noticed the same thing. Um, the first time that I s assisted my physician in removing um, a G-tube, I was like, this is not for me. I, I need to go back to the front. Um, I'm very comfortable reading it. I'm very comfortable imagining it in my eyes, but being in the room and seeing it and even worse, smelling it, I was like, no, yes. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> Yes, but I can exactly. see how you would be fascinated by some of those hematology diagnoses, especially in OBGYN and how that affects right. and the RH factors and, you know, so much that we do learn from blood. Exactly. And then the wild thing was, I guess, in the midst of my OBGYN career, my brother, um, he has like a half a dozen children, but anyways, and he is a carrier of, yes, he has, a, he has like six kids and he has, he's a carrier of what's called NAIT and that is natal autoimmune thrombocytopenia. And so every time, um, you know, his wife would have a baby, um, the baby had these issues with the platelets. And so they went and saw it you know, genetic counseling and talk to all those great people there. And she would get um, transfusions of red blood cells. So that way, when they had their next children, they didn't have those issues. And so just all that. And then the caveat with autoimmune issues, and then you throw in the blood disorders and such. So I'm one of these people, I like to know the why. Yeah. So that you know, how, how did that happen? Sometimes the etiology is unknown and sometimes um, we know where it comes from. Yep. I think it's funny. Um, for many, many years, I would talk to people and they would go to the doctor's office and completely give this 
false history. How are you? Fine. How you feeling? Great. Um, do you drink? No. Do you smoke? No. All the right answers they thought the doctor wanted to hear. How's your diet? Great. I eat lettuce every day. Do you exercise? Oh, marathon runner, right? Then they run the blood work and the blood work comes back and says, liar, 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 right? Um, so I, I tell my friends, I tell my colleagues, I tell my husband, don't lie to your doctor. Eventually it's going to come out. So as soon as that first drop of blood gets analyzed, CMP, CBC, they're able to tell exactly what's going on with you, or maybe not exactly, but they've got a much better picture than the one that you're trying to paint, you know? Um, exactly. so uh, always fascinated by hematology and what we can find out just by looking at the blood and how that works. So you may not know this about me, um, Barbara, but for many, many years, uh, when I owned a billing company, I had to scratch the itch of teaching. I love teaching. It's my number one passion. Um, so I taught phlebotomy for about, um, I want to say seven years I taught phlebotomy and all of those courses always included explaining the red blood cells, the white blood cells, what's a differential, what are the different white blood cells, the platelets, the, and then when we get into the serum, what we can see in that serum. So secretly I'm a huge hematology fan. There you go. <laughs> so what are some of your favorite parts about hematology codes or um, risk adjustment or whatever, whatever just turns you on about hematology? Well, I, I have a photographic memory. So memorizing the codes and then the dumping and stuff, because when I started in college in this, my first office, cause my mom was a nurse practitioner, I could pull the charts by the numbers by memorizing the numbers. So they would always say, hey, can you pull our charts for tomorrow? And I could pull them. I, I memorized the Incredible. chart number to the patient's name. So like for hematology, we know in that HCC hierarchy, it's 46, 47, and 48. However, 47 cannot be trumped. And that code is, or is your neutropenia. And there's, there's about 60 of them. And I always associate that one with oncology, you know, knowing that's my neutropenia code. And then, of course, knowing the hierarchy between 46 and 47. So sometimes when I talk about that, I, I find that to be interesting and fascinating when I'm trying to teach trumping to people, hoping that others will see it the way I see it. But sometimes that doesn't happen. But lately, I guess I can say what I'm interested the most are the immunodeficiency codes and such, because I have an autoimmune disorder. So mm. sometimes I will see providers diagnose or use the wrong code. And I'm like, oh, let's change that. Um, so, you know, so I kind of, I like that. Um, and then of course I'll reference like coding clinics and the guidelines, you know, and I go, now this is what we should do. And so all that wonderful, cool stuff. I'm uh, you just mentioned coding clinic. I've been sitting here the last couple of days, just trying to decide whether I'm going to purchase it for the upcoming year. It's such a major purchase, but I use it so much that, it's uh 
it's almost a necessity at this point is to have those coding clinics. It's it's so so helpful for us. But um, I know exactly what you're talking about with those codes and the hierarchies. I never thought about using the hematology hierarchy. I always use the um, the diabetes hierarchy when I'm trying to explain the hierarchy purpose to somebody. But it makes sense to use that hematology because, again, sometimes you can have a hematologic disorder that's easy to maintain um, and, and doesn't really cause any problems, but sometimes we have those that are very problematic and they fluctuate from being uh, active or inactive or stable, and that's going to affect the way that we code it out. Exactly. So, so when you're doing a chart review or if you're doing an audit or you're coding and you look at the format of a visit and you see what's in the HPI to what's in the problem list, although the problem list is a problem because it's usually not current. And then you have the past <laughs> medical history and you see this condition there and then you see these medications. And so it's like this condition, you know, it's either active or it's historical or whatever, you know, or it's in remission or it's mm -hmm. whatever. But you, you know how that the story goes with that one. Yeah, that's why the problem list is just a problem. Exactly. Yeah, I've seen patients on the problem list that have had a foreign body for the last five years. Get it out. Okay. <laughs> Let's just stop. Or they've had an upper respiratory infection for three years or bronchitis for three years. And you're like, really? Well, I'm sure they don't. Um, the other thing you mentioned, the medication list. Yes. I, I've been sharing with with people from an MRA perspective or, or risk adjustment perspective, I've been sharing with them that when I go to the podiatrist or even recently I went to the ophthalmologist, um, even my chiropractor asks me for a list of the medications that I'm taking to see how it affects those specialties or how it might interact with a condition or with a diagnosis treatment plan that they've got for other conditions. My podiatrist doesn't manage hypertension. My ophthalmologist doesn't man manage diabetes or any of those conditions. So when they ask for the drug list, that doesn't automatically support that they're managing that condition. I always say you have to go back to primary care and remind them that they've got to marry those things together because as a coder, I don't know what cures people. I don't know what treats people or what makes a condition stable. I can't make that assumption there. So um, I'm sure that you see that every day where it's just a list of drugs or a problem list, and they're trying to include that into the, the office visit. Right. You know, a great example is you're looking at a chart node and say the patient's coming into the primary care and they have hypertension, diabetes, and you look at the medications and they're on lisinopril and they're on metformin. And then you see a medication like tamoxifen or Humira. And then, you know, the little red lights go off and it's like, okay. And then the medical decision making and the doctor's talking about the risk and such. And it's like, well, you have this these meds over here, you know, I'm sure that may have come into your medical decision-making for um, all of that. But I even just had a conversation with a physician last evening and he was asking me, he was a primary care physician asking about conditions that he, he co-manages. 
And I told him, I said, anything that you assess, address, or evaluate that comes into the medical decision-making, even if you're not the primary physician, but that is a part of it, because we know that's a component for our leveling for ENM, by all means, you need to document that condition. Absolutely. Even if it's a small statement, like, um, you know, I have no concern with the patient continuing the tamoxifen that is ordered by the oncologist while taking lisinopril and metformin. Like, amazing how that one sentence can marry all of that together and show that they have addressed the fact that they're taking a medication from another provider. Like, I, I always tell providers just because we have these click boxes with macros doesn't mean that you can't jump in that box and add free text. And one sentence isn't going to take up your entire day. It really, one sentence to marry that information. It's, uh, I think you were telling me a, a story about a conference when it was related to time and how much time things take. And that was a funny story if you wanted to share that. Oh, okay. So I had the great opportunity to present to this Virginia State AAPC conference. And I did my presentation and then I took questions. And the first one, people were asking what CRC courses to take. And then some people asked about ENM coding. And of course, ENM comes up in any platform that you're in. Mm -hmm. And then this oh, other Barbara, lady was to interject real quick. I have a question, just a quick, quick question that you sparked. And if I don't ask it, I'm a lady of a particular age. I'll forget. Um, do you ever find that now with the new description of ENM, the new guidelines that you can use some of that uh, dis definition in risk adjustment? Like the problems yes. need to be addressed or the visit doesn't count. And if the visit doesn't count, then the diagnosis don't count. Mm hmm. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Make friends <laughs> and make friends in those discussions, <laughs> especially if they're a physician. But but getting back to that conference, this one lady kept emphasizing that she has a couple providers in her group that keep charging level five visits and they keep doing it, they keep doing it, she keeps talking to them. And so I told her, I said, Well, I understand what you're saying. I said, however, I'm I'm not, you know, auditing that documentation because because I cannot agree with what you're saying. And she kept going on and on and how the insurance companies are paying this and she's worried about an audit. And I said, well, something I did in the past that may be helpful to your group is to take an hour slot from your provider schedule in the morning and take an hour in the afternoon and then look at the encounters or the or if there's procedures that are done. And if anything is by time or the level of the visit, and then you take that 60 minute slot and then you calculate how much time over here, which you're saying two of the visits he's saying he spent 50, 60 minutes. So mm -hmm. right there, he can only see one patient. So we're up to three hours and 25 minutes right now. And I said, I don't know about you, but I went to public school and I did well in general math. So there's an issue that we have right here. Yeah. And so people started chuckling. And so I started laughing too. And, and I told her, I said, sometimes we have to do it that way because you yeah. have those level five providers to let them know. Absolutely. Um, I got a couple of questions that I was looking at here and I thought I would throw them at you and see. So um, our good friend, John Pazowski asks, 
do you see a lot of interactions with other disease processes during hematology visits or do the providers stick to the main complaint? It all depends. It depends on the patient's history because sometimes you can have a complex patient that may have pretty much a negative type of history and they may have this cancer that comes from nowhere or this hematology condition. But then, you know, all patients are different. You can have a healthy patient and you can have a patient that's not so healthy. So it's, it's a mix. Absolutely. Um, uh, Dr. Rosenstock also had a quick question too. Do you have an opinion on billing modifier 26 by a pathologist who runs a hospital-based lab for blood work performed? That oh, is wow. an well, interesting question. That's a, right, because then you're wanting to know if the pathologist is an employee of the hospital where they're using their equipment. Um, there's there's a lot of components with that one. Right. So I think it's not a straightforward answer on that one because you, the the employment structure or is it a contractual agreement? How is he being compensated? Um, I, I, is it a are they purchasing his services? Are they? So there's a lot more that goes into that, Dr. Rosenstock, than just a, a straightforward answer. But if you want to send me an email or send Barbara an email, um, I think both of us would be interested in maybe going down that rabbit hole with you. Right. It seems usually when the modifier 26, that's typically the provider who's at the hospital assessing a patient. He's using the hospital's equipment like to do an ultrasound. That's usually, That's my best experience with yeah. that modifier. Yes, absolutely. So those are those are definitely challenges that we would see in hematology. Is there any challenge that that you see on a regular basis, Barbara, that that you want to share with us? Besides HCC and and risk adjustment, because that one that one keeps me up at night too. <laughs> no, I think it's just the specificity of diagnosis codes. And when I used to work in provider offices, I I would jump right into the computer system and I would help them list like their most common codes. And I did that to help them. However, sometimes people kind of will just gravitate to that one code. If they have diabetes. It's always this code. If they have, um, you know, it can be sickle cell anemia. We're going to use the unspecified, even though they know the specificity of that diagnosis code and it's coming out of that comfort zone. And I guess that's why I like the 2021 updates to the guidelines, because it gives the physicians more time to actually drill down on those codes. And especially with von Willebrand's disease expanding mm -hmm. out where we can have those correct codes. And a lot of times, once you start using that correct code, then your nurse who orders the lab, you know, or another physician office, they'll use the correct codes because I don't know about you, but it, it's so easy to go, oh, wow, you know, they use the wrong diagnosis code. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's usually my emphasis is, you know, let your clinical team update the components of the chart and you go and review and sign off on it and then spend your extra time in writing your assessment and plan. Mm -hmm. So that way you can drill down on those 74,000 some odd diagnosis codes that we have. You know, we are just about at 74,000 now, aren't we? I think that uh, this year was a 
big jump, big jump. They added 1176 new codes. And so that was a really big jump. Last year, we only had a few hundred new codes. Um, I think they were sitting on some of those codes. I'm going to be honest. But uh, RBGYN got a lot of new codes. And I learned a lot they of things did. too. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm the, doing, they, I do a lot. I've done a lot of presentations on OBGYN. And so with all the new endometriosis codes and then all the obstetrical codes and see, that's where I like obstetrics. You have the hierarchy of the coding. And so I like to talk about sequencing and that sort of thing. I just had a talk with uh, yesterday with a group and we were talking about the sequencing of codes and you know, how it's very easy for a payer to deny something when you're not sequencing them correctly. If you require a, a code first, or you have, you're listing a code that cannot be listed as a first or a primary diagnosis, well, then you automatically set yourself up. And, um, and I showed them a list of codes and there was not one encounter code on it but there was a list of codes that cannot be reported as primary diagnosis. And even though it's a good diagnosis code, it can't be listed as that primary. So when you're pointing to that diagnosis as the primary reason for an ENM or for a, a procedure, you're going to get denied experimental, um, uh, you know, investigational, not medically necessary and a lot of times it causes us to scratch our head. Why are we getting this denial? And it's because we don't realize that there were those instructional notes for sequencing. This cannot be a primary code. So uh, that's so challenging there. And the other one is you were talking about unspecified codes. That drives me crazy. When the labs are in front of you, you know exactly the origin of this, the etiology of it, or you know the severity of it because you're looking at those ranges and how how far out of range a value could be. So you could really give us that specificity. Anemia unspecified sometimes drives me crazy because um, you have the technology to find out exactly what is deficient. Exactly. Exactly. So Barbara, what are your go-to references? So when you're scratching your head and um, you are looking for additional information, or maybe when you're presenting or you're educating providers, what's your go-to? Well, I like, I like to go to the American Hematology Association because they, it's, it's an authoritative source and it can get you to what you're doing. If you're looking for a code for sickle cell anemia or your immunodeficiencies or whatever, you can drill down into it and great references. So I use that one. Merck Manual is a great one. Mm. And of course, anytime you use any resources, make sure to check with your managers and such, because those are some that I like to use. Just make sure it's approved. And of course, I love the Mayo Clinic. They're, they're great um, with giving great information and mm -hmm. everything you need to know the everything you want to know. Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you happen to be coming across some of these unspecified diagnosis, um, my, my recommendation is that you do go and look at um, what other specified diagnoses are there out there in that group and maybe provide the, the provider with a longer list of codes 
that are more specific with their definitions so that you can help them, you can educate them that we do have type 3A von Wildebrand's disease. And so yeah. they can be more specific in it. Sometimes the providers don't know the new codes that have come out or the specificity that's available because they're busy saving lives. So it's it's a little difficult. We can support them and help them by using these resources and, and educating them, giving them those tools. Right. A lot of times if you prepare a slide deck or a PowerPoint and you take a screenshot and you put that with their assessment and plan, they'll see what you're talking about and then have that as a resource as well. That's awesome. That's awesome advice. So, you know, our time is up already. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Barbara. I'm such a fan. You are my go-to person for risk adjustment advice and, and information. I, uh, you are have so many webinars and, and information out there, and I always look forward to seeing you and when you join us for these events and things. So thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you, because I've learned a lot from you, Christine. So keep doing what you do. Well, you know, it takes a village, my friend. Um, I recently was listening to Simon Sykes and he's a, a good Ted talker. And he said those exact words, like individually, we are never going to know everything. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, but together when we bring all of our collaborative information, we know a whole lot. So it's, it's uh, joining together like this. So thank you. Uh, I think Lexi has a few announcements that she wants to make about some upcoming events that we've got going on. Lexi? Hello, everybody. Uh, we are one week away from the Virtual Business of Healthcare Colloquium, and we'll have so many amazing speakers. Um, the link will be down below for you to join. We hope you can join us. Um, uh, also, today and tomorrow is AuditCon. Christine will be on a lot of panels if you're interested. Um, I believe that's all that's happening for November. Sure that you join me today and tomorrow for AuditCon. Um, lots of great information that's going to be coming up. So for those of you that do spend your time in the audit world or in the education world with providers, um, lots of great tips, tricks, and tutorials coming your way today. All right. Well, thanks again, Barbara, for joining me. And we will see you all in two weeks. Thanks for watching. Great. Thank you.